Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Anxieties of the Heart. Curtis. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everybody here today, as it always is. Not that it's never wonderful to see everybody. I was thinking about how I always introduce by telling everybody how wonderful it is to see everybody, but I, I really truly mean it uh, because as many of you know and as we're going to get in today, this world uh, can bring out sometimes the worst in our human nature. Uh, this past September, I think, was the last time I spoke here, and just to kind of give you a little information about the message I'm bringing today, the last message was entitled, Treasures of the Heart. And uh, in that message, we focus on some words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew, the sixth chapter, verses 19 through 24. And we looked at how uh, the treasures of this earth and how temporary they are. And we looked at the snare and the pitfalls about relying on the God of wealth. And that's what Jesus was talking about there in Matthew, the sixth chapter, the God of wealth. And the God of ourselves, relying on temporary things, and we remember that Jesus said not to lay up and store for ourselves treasures on earth, but rather rely and look to those treasures that are eternal. Well, I had planned when I gave that message to give another message that focused on the following words that Jesus had to say after he said this here in Matthew, the 6th chapter, verse 19 through 24. So today we are going to go along with that plan that I had planned a few months ago. And my plan from the very beginning was to bring a message entitled, Anxieties of the Heart. And I never realized how much of an opportune time it would be to bring and look and ponder such words that Jesus had to say about anxiety, about worry. And I don't know if everyone would agree with me or is, maybe feels the same way, but as far as my life, I've only lived for almost 29 years now, or 28 and a half, rather. And as you all know, as you are living and you have grown up and you can ponder and look back on your life, that really all of us, maybe not all of us are the same, but usually it takes a little while to be able to, to come to the maturity to realize just how big and scary this world can be. And I think there's milestones in our life that kind of maybe even intensifies this. And for me, I think just kind of becoming understanding about the world. And then when I was 17 years old, September 11th happened, which was kind of, I would say, a beginning point in my life where I realized how big this world was. And the, uh, the things that can take place in this world. Uh, also, as you know, and many of us know, I think that having children sometimes can up the ante a little bit in regards to our understanding of, of how you know, frightened we can be, how much we can worry, how much anxiety that can bring on us. And that just is one more milestone in our life. And then hopefully, uh, as you get older, you kind of get into an even kill. Uh, regarding your worry about life, but not everybody. And the old saying that as you get older, uh, you get wiser is, in my opinion, not true. It should be true, but it's not always the case because there are many people that I have as friends that are my age, and I feel like they have not become wiser as they've gotten older. 
so that is not always the case. But just speaking today in our modern 21st century, 2012, uh, in my life, going back to what I was just saying, I think that we're in a time period where I can't really think of a time that there was so much just absolute direct anxiety that people have today living in the United States of America. Uh, and I'm just saying this from my perspective, as far as my memory lets me go back. But there are certain things that people, uh, as you all well, all well know, uh, that seems to be uh, causing more people more and more anxiety today. And, and some of it's economic uncertainty, uh, political discouragement with some, and it's causing a lot of people a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety. Uh, world unrest, uh, we understand that there are things that's been going on world unrest-wise, but it seems to me that any time Israel starts getting entangled in, in uh, I guess you would say, more severe and more intense unrest, uh, the world itself tends to get a little bit more unrestful. And then, of course, my anxiety, and I think some of you guys might uh, join me on this, the end of the Twinkie. So that's, that's apparently caused a lot of people, and if you don't know, if you're not familiar with this, the company who makes Twinkies uh, just yesterday decided, I guess, that they're going to shut up shop and liquidate all their assets. And uh, uh, maybe there's some off-brand Twinkies out there for you guys that are you know, Twinkie lovers and Twinkie heads. So. But anyway, as I mentioned, I've, I don't think there's a time where I've seen so much rampant anxiety I mean, we have things going on in our world today, the, the country we live in. Obviously, we, you know, everyone lives in a bubble to an extent. You know, some people live more in a bubble than others. Uh, but when you live in a country as such as America, uh, and, and we, to some degree, are kind of sheltered from seeing some of the things that go on in the world, as far as when we think about maybe the poverty and maybe the absolute, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, craziness that can take place you know, outside of the borders of the United States, uh, but I think that all of us can agree that there are some things going on just here in our nation uh, that is kind of maybe a little bit odd for the bubble that we have all grown up in. Uh, I think we have something like 18%, I heard, of the state of Texas wanting to go ahead and cut themselves off from the United States. Uh, so that is really the title or the idea of my message today is just to focus a little bit you know, because we as Christians, we're supposed to be better than this. We're supposed to be above this. We're supposed to be above the anxiety that some people have to the extent where it just almost makes them uh, in a state of unhealthiness. And why I say that is, is that we all know we're human. We sin and we fall short of the glory of God every day. Uh, but with that being said, we're still, no matter what's going on in this world, we're still the ambassadors of Jesus Christ here on this world. Uh, so we have even more of a duty to do when times like these come about and people have attitudes such as they have to show the love, the glory, and the absolute promise-filled plan of God to people that live in this world. So what I would like to do today is we're just going to quickly look over some of the words of Jesus, and we're not going to go line by line quite like we did last time in the treasures of the heart message. We're going to continue on there in Matthew the 6th chapter, if you want to turn there with me. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter, there in chapter 6. And, 
And the way I would like to do this today is to, to, to look at what Jesus said and consider those things, but then take it a step further and go back and look at an illustration that I think is pertinent to all of us as Christians. And that is the illustration of two people, or, or a one person and then a group of people. That is Moses and the children of Israel. But if you pick it up there in verse 25 of Matthew 6, it says, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon... And all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day, it's its own troubles. And I think that if some of the things I do as a teacher uh, is I have students sometimes read a paragraph and write one sentence that tries to summarize the main idea of that paragraph they just read. And I think that you could sum up what Jesus was saying in the words of stop worrying, which is a main point we have today, because God will provide. And you might be looking and sometimes we try to, you know, what you, know, you might read, you know, the title of this message, Anxieties of the Heart, and sometimes we might think maybe there's a special formula. There's a special formula for us, you know, to stop worrying, to stop having anxiety. But really the formula is, is this. Listen to the words of Jesus, believe him, and look to what he points to in trying to convince you that, about the silliness of something he's trying to tell you not to do. So the first main point, we just got to look at what Jesus says. Jesus is dealing with some very elementary, basic things of life. He mentions not to worry about our, our, you know, the food we're going to eat, you know, the, what we're going to drink, our own bodies, you know, which food and drink and then also clothing has to do with our bodies and our life. And these are basic, essential things. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you several reasons why it's silly to, to, to uh, worry about these things. I'm going to appeal to your logic. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus actually takes it a step further. And not just telling us not to worry about these things, these basic elementary things that, that many people worry about, that really is evidence that when we worry about these things, it's almost for surety that we're going to be worrying about the major things, okay? And Jesus appeals to our logic by giving us several reasons. First, his logic is just looking at nature. And he uses the illustration of birds in the air. Now, I don't know a lot about birds. Some of you might study birds. But Jesus right here is essentially saying, hey, look at the birds. They don't grow crops. They don't farm. And they don't put things into barns and, you know, store up things and provisions like some other animals do. Or the lilies of the field. 
You know, Jesus said that the lilies of the field is like the grass's clothes. So God is looking at the birds of the air and the lilies and fields. And he's saying, look at these things. I take care of them. And look how much more valuable you are. So logic should tell you, look, if I'm taking care of these things that are much more valuable, that you're much more valuable than, then it's a given. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide you with these things, with these provisions that you need. He also pointed out that, hey, look, these are things that the Gentiles do. And we can look at our own life and say unbelievers, people who don't believe in the promises of God or, or atheists or don't believe in God or don't live like they believe in God. And he's saying, this is the distinction of them. How, much di how are you any different if you live your life with the same worries and anxieties as the Gentiles or for us, the unbelievers? And the last reason, the last appeal to logic, I think is the best. Jesus says, don't worry because it's pointless. What's it going to do for you? As Jesus mentions in his own word, he says, which of you worrying can add which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? And if you look into the Greek and you do some word studies on that, it's kind of a euphemism of someone saying, how can worry add even a single minute to your life? And in fact, if you're familiar with the medical sciences, it can't. In fact, worrying is going to do more to decrease your lifespan than it is going to do to increase your lifespan. So worrying, in a nutshell, about such things, it does nothing for us. And we're going to see an illustration how anxiety, how worry, a lack of faith of God, even in the midst of all the proof that he's taking care of us, does nothing for us. Let's go to Exodus, the third chapter, and let's look at that illustration I mentioned about Moses and the children of Israel. And just to give us a little bit of a background about what was going on here, we know the story We've read the stories of Moses. We've read the story of the burning bush. We've read the story about how he was spared and he wasn't killed as a child. And he ended up being a part of the Egyptian, uh, you know, in the Egyptian schools. And he was trained in all the wisdom and educated in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. But, but he also knew that he was an Israelite. And he also came to the understanding that his fellow kinsmen were being oppressed. And they were being enslaved. And one day, as we've read the story before, we're not going to look at that specifically, Moses was seeing how one of his kinsmen were being treated very, very badly. And he struck an Egyptian who was doing it, and he killed him. And from that point on, he went into the wilderness, and he ended up getting married, and he ended up having a father-in-law father named Jethro, and he had children. And one day, he was in the fields. We were about 40 years removed from him being in Egypt among his people and among the Egyptians. And something happened because God the Almighty had found it to be the right time and determined that now was the time to bring about the promises, to fulfill the promises that he had given or given to Moses' forefathers, to his ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to deliver the children out of Israel or out of Egypt, excuse me. And guess what? He's picked Moses to be his agent. If we were to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
For I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up and from the land to a good land and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And we know this story, that Moses now, someone, he must have been thinking, what are you talking about? As he, we're going to look and see some of the first uh, things that Moses says, we're going to look at uh, three different objections that he has to God. You know, God tells him, hey, look, Moses, I've decided to pick you. You're going to be my agent to do this, to fulfill the promises that I have to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses gives four objections, and the first one is in verse 11. You don't have to read it, but basically he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He has a sense of inadequacy. I mean, Moses was probably thinking, God, are you kidding me? You're sending me to a land where I'm probably wanted for murder. And you expect them to believe me or even listen to me, if not kill me. But God gives them this sign. And the sign was, was something that would take place later in the future. And that sign was that at everything, after everything was done, after it was all said, all completed, that the children of Israel would be delivered out of Egypt. And they would come to this mountain right here and worship the Lord Almighty. The other objection is in actually in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, when Moses says, well, okay, that's what you're wanting me to do, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me or believe me at all? They don't listen to anything I say. They don't believe that God has come to me, that you have come to me and have chosen me to deliver them out of Egypt. And God gives them three signs, and the sign was number one, the sign of the staff, or the rod. We all know what that rod did. He used that rod to do other things, such as part the Red Sea. He used that rod uh, with many of the uh, plagues that he put upon the uh, Egyptians. He also gave them the sign of turning Moses' hand into a, lep into a lepr hand leprous. And the last sign he gave them was a sign of turning water into blood. The last objection that Moses had was in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4 where he basically says, but there's one last thing, God, that shows that I cannot do this. I am of slow tongue. I can't speak. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm not going to be convincing or persuasive. But God ensures Moses, and he's getting a little, it seems in the scripture, he's getting a little irritated at Moses. And wanting to, not understanding or wanting to show Moses the folly of his unbelief because God says, look, Moses, you just told me that you're not a good speaker. I said I'm sending you to, to Pharaoh to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And you're talking to a guy and trying to tell a guy, or not a guy, but God, who, what? Created the mouth, made the mute, made the blind, the deaf. God is saying, how are you having so little faith? I'm sending you to do something and you don't have faith that me, the creator of all there is, 
cannot provide what you need to do this task that I've, that I've charged you with. But in the end, we know the story. God provides Aaron, his brother, to be his spokesman. To be the spokesman for Moses. To, to, he would tell Aaron everything that God would say. And Moses and Aaron both sometimes would deliver the news to Pharaoh. And all of these objections that Moses gave, or gave God, God showed and promised and gave Moses the assurance that he would provide. He would provide for everything God had charged Moses with doing. Now if we flip over a little bit and go to Exodus the 16th chapter, we're going to kind of skip over the story, the story about how Moses did indeed go into Egypt. He did deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. We remember all of these miracles, after all of them was done, all of these plagues, all of this judgment that came upon the Egyptians, the ten plagues, the Red Sea parting, the cloud by day and the pillar by night, the, 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 the showing of God's glory, being present with the children of Israel, they themselves as a group still lacked faith. In God. In fact, there's even evidence that the Israelites wanted to go back to that place of complacency. That, yeah, things weren't the best in Egypt, but we didn't have this fear and worry that we have right now. You know, they saw the Red Sea part, they saw God deliver or them out of the hands of the Egyptians, they saw all of the judgments put on the Egyptians. And somehow, even at the end of the day, they still ask themselves and still worried that maybe they might starve to death. In verse 1 of chapter 16 of Exodus, it says, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month. After they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They would rather go back to Egypt than to be in this place that God was delivering them to. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and that shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And we know that this is the beginning of God revealing, re-revealing once again where his Sabbath day was. It had been lost, many people, and he was showing them from the very beginning tying in creation and also their deliverance from, from Egypt. But God provided bread for them. Everything God did, continually He provided. Even when God would provide for them, they still had a lack of faith. But we, as Christians today, we have a great opportunity. We have an opportunity that the Israelites did not have, or as a whole did not have. We have to look at this not in judgment, not in trying to, you know, oh, look at them Israelites and, you know, we're so much better than they, but benefit. Thank God that we have these illustrations to show us that God worked in history 
And he did what he said, and he meant what he said. And actually, if we flip it over to the New Testament, which we're going to look at now, we're going to go to a very popular passage that shows this, where the Apostle Paul, we're going to look at two things that makes these stories that we read about the children of Israel and their, their uh, time in Egypt and their wilderness story so pertinent to us. But 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, which many of you probably know that's where I'm going, is one of the best passages to look at because it's directly telling us how important these stories are. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. Verses 1, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And we know, as Paul continues on in there, he said that these were all written down for our audition. Okay, These were written down for our benefit. To looking back at the children of Israel and the things that God did and the way God moved in history and time. God moved and dealt with human history. And he always was faithful to the things that he said. Now we can look back also and look at the children of Israel and we can look at their unfaithfulness. Not just in their complaining like they did to Moses and like Paul was alluding to here. But we can look at the events they went through such as their lack of faith to their disobedience to their example of how they would turn away from God and, and desire more to go back to Egypt. To that place of complacency. But we can also see the example how God always provided for them. And this is extremely pertinent because when we come to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, we're going to see in John the first chapter, verse 1 through 5, if you want to turn there real quick, we're going to see that there's going to be great illusions hearkening back to these wilderness days in the, in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Verse 1, another very... Famous scripture, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And if we were to flip over just a few scriptures later, in verse 14, John writes this, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that term there in verse 14, dwelt, that term, we, we might sometimes read that, the Feast of Tabernacles. It harkens back, it means to pitch a tent, that word dwelt, that Greek word that's used there. And it harkens back to Israel's wandering in the wilderness when they beheld God's glory from afar off. They saw not just the miracles that God performed. They didn't just see the Red Sea parting, but they actually saw the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They saw Him raining smoke and fire down that consecrated the tabernacle. They saw God's glory fill the tabernacle. And from afar off, they saw Moses deliver God's commands. And of course, they also encountered God at the Mount Sinai when God delivered the Ten Commandments. They did see God's glory, but it was always from afar off. But now, 
John is writing us. And he's knowing that his, his readers are going to be able to put two and two together, hearkening back to that glory that Israel beheld. And he's saying, now, God has come to us in a much more personal way. Through the person of Jesus Christ, who dwelt among, not just from afar off, but right in front of somebody, right in front of his disciples. He ate with his disciples. He taught his disciples directly. He washed their, their feet. And John is showing now is the time that God's glory is being manifested in the most personal way that can be manifested. And today, he dwells among us and in us by God's Holy Spirit. As Jesus talks about in the Gospels, he says, And now God provides not just physical manna that the Israelites ate, but he actually provides us with spiritual manna. If we were to look at John 6, verse 35, if you were to turn there, just write it down. You don't have to. It says, when Jesus was talking to some of the people, he said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Before this, whenever Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said to the woman, talking about getting water, and he said, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And we have these words written down right in front of our water fountain. That this is what Jesus, when we look back to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 31 through 34, the last part, Jesus is telling us, hearkening, coming full circle, looking at the illustrations of the children of Israel in Egypt and in the wilderness. Looking at that last few scriptures when Jesus says, don't worry because, and gives several reasons about these things. And verse 31 of Matthew, the fifth chapter says, therefore do not worry and say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things that Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And when we read back in the illustration of the children of Israel, we see that God knew that they needed those things that they worried about and they complained about. And God always provided with them with what they needed. Even in the midst of a very powerful empire, a very powerful kingdom, and the head of that kingdom chasing after them, he provided for what they needed in parting the Red Sea and letting them walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and delivering and smiting the Egyptians in front of Israel. And Jesus came and has come and shows us that we are not just children of Israel wandering in a wilderness and watching the glory of God from afar off, but we can behold His glory because He has come into human existence and has become and came to us and His glory is now manifested in the most personal way in the person of Jesus Christ. In the most personal way in the sense that He lived on this very earth that we lived in. He was tempted beyond all measure and He understands the carnal inclinations that people have. He understands. He, didn't just, he wasn't just in heaven looking down on mere humans, but He walked among humans. He understood what it was to thirst to be hungry, to feel pain. 
And in verse 31 through 34, verse 33, when it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this passage sums up, essentially, the idea of not worrying about the elementary things in this life. And to trust God, just as simple as that. And many of us use our logic, and God wants us to use our logic, and to see that God has worked in space and time in the affairs of humans. And He's not just God to us, but He is our Heavenly Father. And as parents, as mothers and fathers, we can understand, or just family members of somebody, we can understand how much we care about our family. And that's what God is. He is our family. He is the head of our family. But Jesus says, instead of concerning ourselves with these elementary things, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That bread and water from heaven, the spiritual food and drink, and when we do this, we show where our heart is. We show that we are fixed not on the things of this world, not even our own selves, but we're fixed on God. We're fixed on Jesus Christ. You know, just a month ago, we went to the Feast of Tabernacles, and we exalted God and Jesus Christ, the King. And we rejoiced because there's a kingdom coming to this earth where Jesus will finally one day settle the score. And we know that is as sure as God is. And nothing's changed. No matter what happens on this earth, no matter what political issues are going on economically, none of that has ever changed. So we have to look towards the kingdom and His righteousness. Not elementary things. And compared to the kingdom and God's righteousness, everything, everything is nothing. So when we do this, when we look to God's glory, who provides? In the illustrations, God takes care of the anxieties of our hearts.